So when the scene starts, I treated it like a, a group that was unfolding as it would in my office. And I just worked with whatever was present in the room and available for me to work with. And these actors were remarkable in their willingness to just dive in to the character they were playing and to bring forward some of the conflicts that were more evident and available to be worked with. So. That's Dr. Elliot Zizel, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guest is Dr. Elliot Zizel. Dr. Zizel is a licensed certified psychoanalyst and modern group analyst. A distinguished fellow of the American Group Psychotherapy Association, Dr. Zizel has lectured on various aspects of analytic group therapy, both nationally and abroad. He has served as the vice chair of the Foundation for Advancing Mental Health and is a past member of both the AGPA and the International Board of Certified Group Therapists. A founder and faculty member of the Center for Group Studies, Dr. Zizel maintains a practice in New York City, Austin, Texas, and Rochester, New York. In 2019, Dr. Zizel worked with French director Alexi Lloyd to develop Group, a drama series inspired by Irvin Yalom's novel, The Schopenhauer Cure. In Group, Dr. Zizel performs in the role of the group leader, Dr. Ezra. This series follows the group treatment of eight New Yorkers as they explore hidden truths related to intimacy, loneliness, fear, and sexuality. A link to the series is available in this episode's show notes. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Elliot Zizel. So I'm very excited to uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Elliot Zizel. Thank you, Angela. Good to be with you. Very excited to uh, have this time with you this morning to talk with you about your years of experience as a leader and an analyst and to hear how that influenced you in this series group, which you produced and performed in with that uh, wonderful cast. So let's just jump in and I would love to hear what you'd say about how you discovered group and what inspired you to make it uh, such a central part of your life and work. Maybe it'd be helpful to back up just a little bit and uh, share with you that I grew up in a family of uh, business people. Uh, My grandfather, both sets of grandparents were immigrants to this country. My father was born in Europe and was an immigrant uh, to this country. They were in business. My family was in the machine tool business for 89 years. They had a presence in uh, New York City in the machine tool business. There was a district in New York City, down around Canal Street, that was known for 
40 or so families that were in the machine tool, used machine tool business. So with that in mind, I was raised uh, to be the third generation in that business. And having grown up in the 60s and been bitten by the bug of cultural and social changes going on at that period of time, as soon as I finished college, where I studied uh, economics in preparation for going into the family business, I went back to live in Israel. I volunteered in the Six-Day War as a young college student, left college, spent a few months in Israel during that period of time, and then decided after college that I really wanted to go back to uh, get involved in the uh, world of uh, filmmaking and uh, television. Television was just dawning at that stage, 1969. It was just beginning in Israel. The first TV stations were just uh, coming online. I had the idea that I was going to go to uh, enroll at uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. They had a communications department. I had an introduction to the chairman of the department. And when I got there, they looked at me and heard my uh, proposal and interest. And they said, uh, what are you doing here? You should be in New York if you want to study television. So I spent most of that year working as a photographer, as a street photographer training my eye and uh, taking psychology courses for the very first time. I left after a year, came back to New York and was determined to uh, either become a therapist or become a documentary filmmaker. So as a consequence of those two interests, I set about to try to uh, explore both fields and uh, went so far as to apply to uh, film school at NYU and was uh, rejected from film school, from graduate school. And when I was rejected from graduate school, I decided um, to try to become a therapist, try to get a job in New York as a uh, entry-level social worker. I didn't have much success at that either. It looked inevitable that I was going to end up working for my father. <laughs> and, and out of some desperation, I ended up working for him for a year during which time I took courses at night in psychology and slowly but surely found my way to social work graduate school during the course of that year. Uh, it, it was a very well-spent year in which uh, it, uh, my suspicions about being in the family business were confirmed. It was not for me. And it allowed me to go to uh, social work graduate school. A few relationships along the way convinced me that I needed help my interest in becoming a therapist, but of course being treated is behind every fighting therapist's motivation to do the work. We do this work because we first and foremost want to know ourselves. And in the process of starting social work graduate school, I was lucky enough to meet a friend who introduced me to my analyst, Dr. Dolores Welber. Uh, Dr. Welber and I began working together that year, 1971. We still work together 50 years later. We're still uh, in contact every week. And along the way, because of what I was learning about myself, I understood that the reparative work that I needed to do is both with men and women. So at some point during that first year of treatment, when Dr. Welber invited me to a group, I said to her, well, you know, actually, I heard about this fellow named uh, Lou Ormond. I think I want to be in group with him. Well, that led to six months of exploration about why I had in mind to work with him and not her. And uh, after a lot of talking, she agreed that I could go uh, work with him and that they would work conjointly. So 
I began group with Lou sometime that year, later that year. And I think group has, uh, for me, some of the origins of my interest in group have to do with my early group experiences. I think my most positive early group experiences took place during the summer when I go off to camp. I didn't enjoy school. I was uh, suffering with learning disabilities as a child. So school was a struggle. But when I went away for the summers and I went to camp, to sleepaway camp especially, I excelled. And I found myself uh, surrounded by people who I enjoyed being with. And I um, love the uh, athletics that we engaged in. And I love the process of just being part of a, a summer camp experience. And uh, I think that that may have had something to do with my interest in group as well. So that's how I began group. That's how I got to group with Lou. Was it like summer camp? Uh, well, no, not at the beginning. At the beginning, it was uh, terrifying. It didn't feel like it. it was a terrifying experience. I was the youngest member of a group that began my week. I was in group with Lou on Monday morning at 8 o'clock in the morning. When I joined that group, it was a, a really ragtag group of people that were in this room together, in this circle. His circle at that point even had a couch in it. At the end of the room, his group room had a couch. Eventually, that couch was no longer there, and there were just chairs. But as I remember it, I was the youngest person, and it was terrifying uh, to be in that room and to be discovering so much about uh, life and people and myself in the process. It was my first exposure to a much wider world than the world I'd grown up in. And I took to it slowly but surely. I was determined to learn uh, why it was so uncomfortable every Monday morning at eight o'clock. Eventually, I added a second group with Lou. On Fridays, I was in a training group with him so that my week was actually bracketed by experiences with Lou, Monday and Friday. Hmm. And I stayed there as a patient in that group on Monday for 24 years and eventually uh, left the group and just worked with Lou on the uh, development of the Center for Group Studies. I think together a total of 36 years that I worked with Lou. What was it about Lou that drew you so to him? Well, like I said earlier, I think the uh, experience of growing up uh, with my particular father and mother left me with uh, a hunger for more connection, both with my father and my mother. And the motivation to understand the nature of that hunger, I think, was uh, what drove me to an involvement with both uh, Dr. Welber and, uh, and Lou. And with Lou, I think uh, I was determined to understand, uh, well, especially in the beginning, when I come to group and I was, I was just a really unhappy 22 or 23 year old, I think it was 23, 23 year old young man. I was pretty miserable. And I'd come to group and he'd be having the time of his life. <laughs> and my suffering didn't seem to, uh, didn't seem to uh, disturb him too much. I was curious about that. I was enraged by that, actually. It makes you smile. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like, why does he get to enjoy like a summer camp feeling and I don't? Right. So it was the drive to understand how he could be having so much fun at my expense. I think, I think that had something to do with it. And he seemed so able to work um, up close with people. Lou had a, a great capacity to uh, engage with people when the transference called for it. And he could work close to the bone. He could work up close and in person with somebody 
he was extremely skillful. It was, it was quite wonderful to see him unravel the obstacles that separated people from him. Hmm. And uh, I wanted more of that. I wanted to understand uh, what he knew to be able to do that. So I became, uh, I became uh, his student in, in that sense. And eventually, I think I became his Moses. I, I wanted to spread the word. It seems like he um, both modeled just another way of being, another option for living with so much play and spontaneity, and also must have been giving you along the way that kind of sense of connection and being seen that sounds like you must have been really hungering for and longing for. Well, that and, and the culture in the group allowed me to see uh, things that I had uh, longed for but hadn't been exposed to. So in my family, for example, uh, anger was never metabolized very well. My father would uh, on occasion rage and my mother would often uh, retreat to her bed in response to anger. So my repertoire was kind of limited. And in group, I could see people engage with each other and be angry, furious, and yet not hurt and not destroy each other and work to use the anger in the service of understanding in a way that uh, I found very compelling. So I wanted more of that. I wanted to know more about how to live with people in close connection and how to uh, make the most of life with people while um, getting closer to the power that comes with uh, close connection, the power of uh, I, the love and hate that inev inevitably comes into life with someone else. And being able to kind of use the love and hate to deepen the relationship. That for sure. So um, back to the, the, the question about group. So my, my other association, of course, was to the, the series group. I spent most of my uh, adult life working at becoming uh, a skilled clinician. And as you know, as a clinician, it takes years and years of work and practice You've heard me say in other places that you go from uh, unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. And then from conscious incompetence, you go to conscious competence, and then eventually to unconscious competence. That's a very long process. It takes 50 years, in my experience, 45 years, 50 years, something like that, to, to get to the point where you understand the work intuitively and can apply yourself to the work in a way that accesses uh, the best parts of you. It encourages a, a process of living that eventually leads to uh, a certain kind of self-acceptance. So if, if your intentions are generally constructive and you're working with people and you misstep and you misspeak and someone ends up hurt or wounded or injured in some way, uh, as long as you stay open to the process with that person, you're bound to learn something about them and about you. So that the rupture and repair that we experience in the work becomes uh, just part of an everyday experience that we look forward to. In my younger incarnation, it, it was much more difficult to tolerate the feelings that went along with the, the uh, rupture and repair process. But as time has worn on, it's become uh, a staple of my life. A staple of my practice. It sounds like something you can really trust. Yes. But, but back to the question of the group series. While I worked at becoming a skilled professional, my artistic interests you know, found expression in different ways. I became uh, something of a, of, a, of a rough carpenter. We live in an old barn up in the country. 
And uh, just to maintain it, I had become something of a carpenter. About 22 years ago, my wife and I took up painting, and that was a, a great addition to life. Painting is, uh, is an antidote to uh, analytic work. It's, it really is analytic work, but it's an antidote to analytic work too. It's analytic in that if you're painting with oils, as we often do, it's very forgiving. You make mistakes. The, the rupture and repair process takes place in painting too. You make a mistake and then you study it and you try to understand why the color on your palette doesn't look like the color in the sky that you were trying to approximate. And then because oil paint is opaque, you can uh, paint over it and you can redo the, the process. It's also an antidote to analytic work, as I said, because you see results very quickly when you're painting, unlike analytic work where the process wears on slowly and is meant to happen slowly. Uh, this can happen in a, in a rather short period of time. So the group series, well, let me say it this way. It's not surprising that it happened when it did. That at that point in my career, I had the room inside my, my heart and my mind to create something. And because my father's orientation was, it was the Abrahamic tradition in my family, the door to the tent was always open. My father uh, came to this country and he didn't speak English hardly. And he was mocked and he was made fun of. And he eventually spoke the Queen's English, plus another six languages. So he never ever wanted to be in the position of being without words or without skill when it came to people. So in his business, no matter who you were or where you came from, he'd find a way to meet you and to welcome you. There was always, uh, when I'd, I'd go down to the office to be with him, one of my tasks, the machine tool district was right close to the uh, part of New York that they called Little Italy. It was cheek by jowl to Little Italy. And I'd be sent out to um, Papalardo's Bakery to pick up loaves of bread that they keep in the office. And depending upon the season, there'd be loaves of bread to give to customers who were walking in to buy machine tools. And if it was the fall, it would be apples. Uh, my father was known for buying $100 worth of apples on, in the morning on the way to the office, uh, on the way down from the country. We lived about 30 miles outside the city. So I met Alexi because of that part of what my father gave me. I was standing at a meeting uh, at AGPA. Molin Lesh had just presented the Ormont lecture. And we were asking questions of Molin. And uh, I noticed Alexi standing to my right with a press pass and a French accent, asking a lot of questions. So I got curious and I turned to him and I said, tell me, what, what's your interest in group? To which he said, well, I optioned the rights to the Schopenhauer Cure, a book written by Molin's collaborator, Irvin Yalom. I wanna make a film based on the book. To which I said, well, that's a great idea, but you know, uh, if you're gonna make a film about group, it would probably be a good idea to be in a group. And I gave him my information and never expected to hear from him. But two weeks later, he came to see me. We uh, talked about group. We talked about his interest in group. His father had been a psychoanalyst in Paris. His mother was a dermatologist. They shared an office in their apartment. And Alexi was an only child, so he had a lot of exposure to patients. Alexi's uh, uncle and great uncle were analysts in London. One of them had met Freud. He had uh, a background that was steeped in analytic thinking and a drive to uh, learn more about group. I invited him into group, though, as a member of group, not as a researcher, but as a, another suffering citizen, which he agreed to. A couple of days later, 
I uh, went to see my own analyst, Dr. Welber, and I was telling her the story about the uh, week at the conference because she comes from that world and knows a lot of those people. And then I said, and I met a French filmmaker. And she said, oh, you met Alexi? And I said, what? You know him? He said, oh, he's my upstairs neighbor. He lives two floors above me in the village. I was astounded. For the first time in 47 years, I put my hand behind my head. And Dr. Wilbur took my hand. And I said, Dr. Wilbur, this is the meaning of the, the Yiddish word bashert, kismet. This was faded. This had to be faded. Because... Alexi had come to see her two weeks before, told her about the project. She said, well, why don't you go to the AGPA meeting? And he did. And of the 1,200 people there that year, he met, uh, he met me. So I think of Dr. Welber as the mother of the project. And Alexi and I worked together for the next two years. And with the help of the group, uh, determined that uh, the best way to do this would be to do it in an unscripted way, to do improvisational acting with the cast to train the cast to be patients and to cast uh, a therapist as the group leader because the proceedings needed structure. You, you couldn't teach an actor to be a therapist for an hour and a half. You could teach an actor to be a therapist for a few minutes, but if we were gonna shoot this for the length of a group process using improvisational techniques of acting, it meant that you had to have somebody provide structure. So very slowly but surely, um, in the group process, uh, I was convinced that I, I could be cast and could play the part of Dr. Ezra Hertzfeld. I'm so curious in both your experience of becoming an actor and of improvising, and I'm wondering about how it was for you to both then be in the series leading group, but also acting and wanting to produce interesting content and to be both improvising and also connecting with the actors who I imagine are also having to channel a very real part of themselves in order for it to be alive. So, so that's, that brings us to an interesting part of the project. So when we started casting the project, Alexi had prepared uh, background information for each character. So the, the characters knew where they grew up, uh, what they ate for breakfast, who their parents were, where they went to school, what their core conflicts were. And uh, we started rehearsing and uh, very quickly realized that uh, what we were doing was a little cumbersome. I was actually doing screening interviews and filming them with new actors. And in some cases, it became pretty apparent very quickly that an actor wasn't right for the role, and yet they were there and in my office and we were filming it. And it, it was way too much uh, of an investment of time and, and emotion in a process that could be streamlined. So we uh, pretty quickly early in the process cast uh, two people, two actors who had familiarity with group, Ezra Barnes and Gabby Cohn. We cast them with the idea in mind that uh, because they knew their way around group, they would elevate the proceedings. It's a little bit like playing tennis with somebody who's better than you are. You get better. When we introduce Ezra and Gabby, Gabby is also a, in addition to being an analyst, she's also a drama therapist. She uh, helped us get to a rehearsal process she organized us and helped us get into a rehearsal process that brought the actors in, in character. They'd come to my office in character and in groups of three or four, sometimes five at the most, we would uh, role play, we'd rehearse. And we'd uh, demonstrate what the process of being in group felt like from the inside. And I would just work with whatever they brought. My acting was not so much acting as it was just uh, being the group leader that I'm trained to be. 
So the actors would ask me, you know, what, what's your training as an actor? And I'd say, I have none. I have no training. Uh, but I've been I've been working with my lines for the last 45 years. So I know my way around this material. And the same was true in the uh, filming process. When we started filming, and at that point, by the way, we had three months of rehearsing. I'd given, you know, many lectures on group and the history of group and the purpose of group. I gave out articles for the uh, actors to read. And we would uh, spend a few minutes at the beginning of each rehearsal session talking about process of group and the purpose of group. We started filming. We went into this with um, a couple of narrative beats that the director gave gave to only a couple of actors. He would quietly go to two actors and say, in this first scene, you and you are going to have a conflict about such and such. But he wouldn't tell any of the other actors, nor me. So when the scene starts, I treated it like a, a group that was unfolding as it would in my office. And I just worked with whatever was present in the room and available for me to work with. And these actors were remarkable in their willingness to just dive in to the character they were playing and to bring forward some of the conflicts that were more evident and available to be worked with. So I, I, we were very lucky, I was very lucky, that my acting was just an extension of uh, a day at the office. I, I did get in the first filming process that we filmed for three days and each of the two sessions that we filmed was filmed three times so on the first day we filmed the first session twice and the second session once and the next day we did the opposite we did the second session twice and the first session once and in the first hour of shooting one of the executive producers of the show is ronald gutman a very well-known character actor who was in the room at the time with his wife, Amy, and I got my first note. You know, actors get notes. And the note was um, that I had to step it up and say more about what was happening in the process in order for the audience to understand the proceedings a little bit better. So if you'll, no you'll notice in the first uh, few chapters, we took the first episode and broke it up into chapters. You'll notice that my level of activity is way more active than it would be in a beginning group process. You're shaking your head, yes, because you understood that. Yeah, I saw that. I noticed that. I mean, the group as a whole, throughout the whole thing, is just really cooking. I mean, it's just moving so quickly, and there's so much uh, material. And it was interesting watching it to see moments where I felt my groups reflected, and then also moments where, uh, you know, I noticed, well, my, my groups don't always feel like that. So it was it was interesting to see uh, the level of activity and, and the level of just movement that was continually unfolding in the group. Right, right. It was uh, charged that way because it was entertainment and it was also edited. So needless to say, <laughs> if you saw the uncut version, it would be a lot more deliberate and slow paced. But because it was entertainment, it was uh, designed to uh, appear the way it does. Sure. It makes a lot of sense. And I'm hearing you were able to really leverage all of these years of experience into the role of playing Ezra. But I'm also curious, since the camera's not there and you're private practice, what your transference or counter-transference to the camera was like? Actually, that's a great question because a couple of things come to mind. Um, I think over the years of learning to teach at AGPA and learning to do demonstration groups in public, I learned the importance of uh, paying attention just to the members of the demo group, to the exclusion of paying attention to the audience. 
I would tell myself that if I did that, and I just concentrated all my attention on the eight people in the circle and not the hundred people sitting on the outer circle, we'll succeed. And that, be, that, that proved to be uh, true in all my years of teaching at AGPA. I think I've, I've had a lot of success with that because of that. And in a similar way, I think I uh, told myself that the camera, there were two cameras, actually. There was a fixed camera in a doorway that you couldn't see from the circle because the room was darkened and the camera was there, a fixed camera. And then the director of photography, Luke, Luke Geisbuehler, uh, Luke makes the uh, Sasha Baron Cohen movies. He's a DP on those movies. He's a very skilled, delightful man. He was uh, working with a uh, handheld camera on his shoulder, very large handheld camera. And he was circulating in the middle of the circle, getting reaction shots, close-ups of the members of the group. And I think I just convinced myself that I'm here to run a group. I, I wasn't caring about the camera. I didn't look at the camera. I didn't play to the camera. I just uh, asked myself to pay attention to the members. And I think that helped. The other thing to keep in mind is that when I got to, to group as a 23-year-old, I was a, a rather timid, depressed young man. I didn't know I had a sense of humor. I didn't know I had a capacity to act. I knew nothing like that. But Ormond, as I said, he had a lot of that. In fact, I don't know if you know it, Angelo, but he, he went to the Yale School of Drama. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Ormond was uh, first a playwright uh, and a screenwriter. He went to Yale, and uh, it was only later that he became a psychologist. So in his work, in training us to be clinician teachers, when I went to him after my doctorate was over, when I finished my PhD, I went to him and I said, we have to teach this work. Let's start a school. Again, I come from a family where starting a school was uh, just part of part of life. My parents started a school when we moved to the country and I was a kid. They started a school to accommodate uh, a growing small community of modern Orthodox Jews. So they bought a farmhouse and the farmhouse during the week was a school. And on the weekend, there was a synagogue. So when I went to Lou and I proposed that we uh, start a school, he was, uh, he was all in. He was excited by the idea. And his commitment to us as patients, as trainees throughout the years was to help us learn to be effective teachers, which meant that he, he drew on his theater background. He helped us know how to teach as if it was performance art. And we spent hours and hours when we were in the process of creating the center of learning how to uh, teach in public, learning how to present in public, learning how to engage people and excite them about the idea of the school and the idea of learning this particular uh, method of treatment. And I think that that was uh, absolutely part of what allowed me to uh, inhabit this role of uh, Ezra, the therapist. Having experienced just improvising and making it feel really alive to whatever audience you're trying to connect with. Using uh, what Lou taught me about uh, public performance, about enjoying myself in public. Yeah, I'm curious what he emphasized sounds like enjoyment, being willing to have a good time. Yes. Uh, he, he would say that uh, you uh, rehearse, you learn the material, you know the material inside out, and then you forget about it and you get up and you do the job. And before the audience uh, claps their hands, you know whether or not you've turned in a good performance, like an actor, like a good actor. I think it was that kind of freedom, that kind of self-acceptance that uh, he kept emphasizing over and over and over allowed me over time 
with a lot of struggle to go from a fellow who stood up. I, I can remember the first time I got up to teach in front of him, my hands were shaking and I had to put my hands together, my fingers together to just keep them from shaking visibly so that I could uh, end up talking. My, my father, of course, was a, was a brilliant public speaker and I was intimidated by him and, and was not encouraged by him in quite the same way. <laughs> there was a lot of unconscious competition with his children. So for Lou to have helped me have that gift, that ability to unleash it in me was part of uh, his work with me. You know, he's not here to enjoy this at the moment, but he'd get a lot of pleasure out of the idea that his work is now better known in the world, that we've managed to take group, the series, and have it viewed uh, to date, I think it's 175,000 times. It's been up on YouTube during the pandemic. It's been used a number of occasions now to teach group process and group leadership in graduate schools of social work and psychology training programs. I, I think that's a great outcome. And what you're saying about Lou and your dad is making me think about kind of mentors and fathers. And I was really touched to hear that uh, the actor that was playing Manny, Bernardo Cubria, uh, was actually wearing his grandfather's shirt during season one. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's incredible. Um, at AGPA for several years before I took on this project of group, I ran an open session with people I've trained and worked with where this very process that I described uh, between Lou and myself where I try to uh, mentor young clinicians who've never presented in public before, or, or presented with limited success in public before, I try to help them uh, in that open session, write a paper, present a paper, and have the experience of being open to the audience and their reactions in that open session. And I think we produced uh, uh, close to 20 papers during the course of uh, seven or nine years. I forget how many years we did it, but <clears throat> a really wonderful body of work came out of that. And a lot of people who had never written before, who had never presented before, I think uh, benefited from the process much the same way I benefited from my work with Lou. I wanted to pass it on. I wanted to re return and expand in the ways that he helped me do. I wanted to help other colleagues expand that way as well. Yeah, expand and come alive in new ways. Yep. So I'd love to talk about what happens in season two. Mm -hmm. I've also heard you talk about the fact that you had COVID. Yes. And I'm wondering just how that ended up influencing what you brought into season two and how the group worked with all the themes that must have been so personal and intimate and alive for them at that time as well. Good question. So to start, I can say that uh, during the first season, once the group understood the parameters of group, and we explained to members of the cast that group members in treatment don't see each other between sessions, they don't socialize. We asked the actors what they think of the idea of not, of not socializing during the filming process. And I'm sure you've heard stories about actors during, during the filming of uh, movies, the uh, social things that happen, the sexual things that happen. They were all relieved to a person. They were all relieved to know that that this was now going to be possible, that we were sanctioning their not seeing each other. As it turned out, for the period of time in between, over a year in between, it was two years in between, they didn't see each other. They didn't socialize. They didn't uh, end up uh, in closer connection. So that when we initiated the idea of filming a second season in isolation, 
they were pretty much all in. And we had no rehearsal time. We just decided we're going to do it with a lot of help to accomplish the technical side of things. We gathered through Zoom and with a couple of uh, beats from narrative beats from Alexi, we just started the process. So this was July of 2020. So with that in mind, keep in mind rather that I'd come out of the hospital in April. I got to the AGPA meeting. Uh, my wife and I both emerged with COVID. I had a very bad case of it, ended up in the hospital with double pneumonia. It was early in the, in the pandemic. So it was terrifying because nobody knew much about what they were dealing with. Luckily, I was uh, at a hospital where they were doing a lot of research and talking to people in Italy, and they were understanding some of the basics about treating COVID, like oxygen uh, absorption rates and uh, emboli that COVID produces. So I was on blood thinners right away on oxygen as soon as I needed it. Sadly, while I was there for the eight days I was there, on the fourth day, I did learn that my mother died. 99-year-old mother died. So I emerged from the hospital, um, uh, quite shaken. The experience of burying my mother from my hospital bed was uh, miserable, very painful. And the experience of missing uh, the mourning period because there was no shiva for my mother. There was no time to uh, gather with the community that I might have uh, otherwise seen in normal times. There was none of that. So when I got to the group filming process in July, I had you know, been on my way to recovering from the pneumonia. I was much better at that point, but still hadn't really had a, a chance to sit down with the group and talk about having lost my mother. So it was one of the first times I was with a group. And when the opportunity presented itself, um, I took it and I said something about, well, it actually came up in the process with the actors. And I, I welcomed it because it was uh, a moment of self-disclosure that I imagine I might have um, experienced if I was in a treatment room with patients under normal circumstances. So there was something healing about the process of engaging in this acting process with these actors, people I've come to respect and love. And it was uh, a wonderful moment. Uh, that, that moment was a wonderful moment for me. And then the process of filming itself was uh, very challenging because of the technical issues. People's computers, it was July, so someone's computer overheated, someone else's computer froze. It, it was very arduous and complicated. And, you know, keep in mind what it was, too. The Black Lives Matters uh, was in full swing, and uh, Trump was, uh, was uh, still very much a presence in this country and causing a great deal of anxiety among the population. And uh, that was all present in the, uh, in the experience of group in season two. Well, it speaks to an experience I had really watching it, which just drove home, this was a group. I mean, you could just feel that. And I remember that moment where you were talking about your grief in season two, and it was alive. It was uh, palpable. And just the sense of the group grieving together and navigating all of the emotional themes that we were all experiencing and contending with was all coming through. I mean, it, it made it at heart so uh, visceral that it was hard to watch at times. But there was also something where as a group leader, I felt like it was, and just as a human going through COVID, that it was speaking directly, so directly to my experience. It was incredible to have it reach me. And I would imagine so many people in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to know that. I'm curious um, what you found challenging and surprising throughout this whole filming process. 
I think the most challenging part of uh, filming season one was the physical discomfort of it. <laughs> we were filming in Alexi's living room. You know, this was done on a shoestring budget. In the process of filming, it was July and it was very hot. It was a 90 plus degree day. And the three days that we filmed, in order to capture sound without interference, there was no air conditioning. So uh, there I sat in my customary tie and sport jacket, and uh, it was hot. It was very difficult from a physical perspective. It was, I, I like, you know, to, to do group and do group well, you as a leader, I as a leader, I've got to be comfortable. If I'm not comfortable, nobody's going to be comfortable because it's, it's going to be felt in the room. You know, the unspoken is just as valuable in some way as the unspoken, as the spoken, rather. If I'm not comfortable, it's, it's not going to go well. And I had a struggle to uh, stay present and not focus on my discomfort. I think that was probably the most difficult uh, part of the filming process. The rest of it was, uh, was discovery. And there was a lot of pleasure in learning a lot of these uh, things that I learned along the way about the filming process, about the mechanics of it. Alexi was uh, uh, helped with uh, some very talented people. And this all got you know, put together in a matter of, of days and weeks. But suddenly there was a, um, a makeup person, there was a wardrobe person, there was a director of uh, photography, there was a sound person. And again, this is all being done in his uh, apartment. So I think I, I, uh, I just loved all that. I love, I love project work. I, would, I love getting involved with things like that, making something happen. Mm-hmm co-creating and it makes me wonder if it ever felt like alexi was a kind of co-leader um absolutely in some ways he was uh he was very much the director so uh, he had these ideas about the storytelling that he didn't share with me completely which is what made for some of the spontaneity in the process but uh he's very much uh, a co-creator in this uh, in this process if anything was um co-created and group created it was this project because there's no way no way we could have done this without an intense uh, collaborative process between all the moving parts that come together when you're making a film like this that was that part was astounding and i would imagine in some ways it's uh, continuing to create and i'm wondering if there's anything that you can say about where it is now where you see this project headed so I think the goal all along was to uh, get to the point where we could uh, take this to a streaming service as a proof of concept. We made this as a proof of concept and determined that if we had enough of a viewership, it's a little bit like, you know, these days we, we live in a world of evidence-based treatment. This is the equivalent of evidence-based entertainment. And we thought with the number of viewers that we've garnered and with uh, the support of uh, a number of uh, producers I'm working with, um, we just signed on with a new producer who remained nameless for the moment because we haven't signed papers yet, but we're on the cusp of signing with someone who's going to bring us to Hollywood and to the streaming services and hopefully bring an A-list actor into the cast to take the part of Henry. And with that in mind, we hope to find funding so we can make the entire series from scratch. The goal is to tell the story in a fuller way. And I think with proper funding, we'll be able to do that and do it in an even richer way, I'm hoping, an even richer way than this uh, first pass at uh, telling the story of group. 
I think we captured something that has never been captured on film before. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm certain of it. I haven't seen anything on, in film or television that gets close to capturing what actually happens in group. So I'm hoping that we'll have another chance at uh, telling an even fuller story, an even fuller version of, uh, of group and what it can do. As you well know, it's a stepchild to individual treatment. And I'd like to see it uh, have the uh, respect and understanding that it, it rightly deserves. And it really seems to be having that kind of impact. I, I can't tell you the number of people that have reached out, interested in group, wanting to know more about group, people that have never had any exposure. In your own practice? Yeah, I've gotten referrals for, from you, Elliot, from uh, from this series. <laughs> it's, uh, That's one, wonderful. And it's also tricky because obviously the lived experience of being in a group can be very different than uh, the series. But just, I think, to have people have the idea of group therapy shift in their mind from something that they think is second rate to individual therapy or people have all these different ideas to all of a sudden really being able to see the the aliveness, the realness, the engagement that group can offer. It's incredible to have it just reach so much more broadly than I think uh, we otherwise might have been able to to reach people. Someone I was working with the other day in supervision was telling me how in a group uh, patient was berating her for being a terrible group leader. And another patient intervened and said, you know, well, wait a second, you know, you should watch this series group. And there's a really good group leader in that series. And uh, the therapist turned to the first patient who was complaining and said, you enjoying her. You, you really ought to watch that. And you'll see how terrible I am compared to that guy. I'm really terrible. Nice. I'm going to use that. <laughs> So I think you're right. It's being used to introduce people to the concept of group, to the experience of group. And now it's even being used to resolve resistances in group. Right. So I'm, I'm delighted to know that. What do you think about for people that aren't familiar with the series at all, but are interested in coming into group? I know some group leaders who have used the series as a way to educate and demonstrate something about group to new members. And then other therapists that haven't or have, uh, you know, concerns about doing that? Well, you know, again, I think it's, it's entertainment. As you well know, not all groups uh, work as, as uh, rapidly or as deeply. You know, it is a good glimpse of what could happen in group. So sure, for, for someone who's uninitiated, for someone who wants to get a glimpse of what might happen in group, it's a wonderful vehicle. I, I think it's great that it's being used that way. So just one final question, because I find myself continuing to think about this, that moment where you reached back and took uh, Dr. Welber's hand and said, you know, this was faded, this kismet. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm curious, Elliot, after all of your years uh, working with the unconscious and studying relationship, I'm curious how you understand that, how you understand those sort of moments of kind of auspicious coincidence or fate, what, what you make of that? You know, I was raised uh, to be a religious person. I was raised in, as I said earlier, in a modern Orthodox community. And while I'm no longer a, a, a ritually practicing Jew, I remain uh, very much a spiritual person in that way and remain connected to the idea that, uh, as, as a teacher of mine once said, life is much bigger than mental health. And I think that's absolutely true. And that to re- remain receptive to all kinds of uh, opportunities and experiences and teachers in life is a way to uh, live a full life, is a way to help other people embrace what's out there to teach us and 
encourage life. Yeah, it makes me think about what you said earlier about bringing just a sense of trust to relationship and being open to whatever feelings may be involved and wherever the uh, relationship might be leading, but continuing to have a sense of um, trust that as long as we stay engaged, things can lead in all sorts of exciting directions. You never know. You might end up uh, an actor in a group series. Who knows, right? I never planned on this, but I'm delighted to be part of it. It definitely inspires a, a sense of awe. So I just want to thank you, Elliot, for being a part of this. It's been wonderful to to talk with you and to hear more about your experience. You, uh, you're a wonderful interviewer, and you helped me uh, put words to some things uh, in a new way. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. If you'd be interested in supporting our podcast, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for future guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. Also, visit our website, fcgps.org, to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs. We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.